Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes coincidences are amazing, lovely things. And sometimes coincidences are unlucky and terrifying. This is a story about that second kind of coincidence, which began to unfold in the early decades of the 20th century. And it starts off as an ivory tower sort of tale, something that almost no one cared about. The tragedy is that it didn't stay that way for long. Yeah, basically, like almost every scientist, they were driven by curiosity. They wanted to know what was going to happen next. What's the next step? Can we push this a little farther? Can we get a full chain reaction going? Things like that. Sam Keen has written about this story of scientists doing their best and how the world suddenly came crashing down around them. One of those scientists was Irene Joliet Curie, who, along with her husband, Frederick, was busy trying to free herself from the shadow of her world-famous mother, Marie Curie who had won two Nobel Prizes and done breakthrough work on radioactivity. Then, in 1935, Irene and her husband were invited to receive the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, which should have been thrilling, a moment of pure celebration. But at the Nobel ceremony, something strange and jarring happened. A German biologist named Hans Spiemann got up, threw out the Sig Heil salute, kind of stunned people. They didn't expect that. At that same meeting, Frederick Juliet Curie, Irene's husband, mentioned chain reactions in his speech. And he sort of framed it as this kind of theoretical worry, as in, you know, we could release a lot of energy at once, and theoretically this could be quite dangerous. And then step by step, they realize that actually it's much more practical than we think for various reasons. Irene and Frederick had also done their work on radioactivity, like Marie Curie, and what began to dawn on them was also starting to dawn on lots of chemists and physicists. The quiet work that they'd been doing to understand elements and how they worked, that work was about to collide with a war, a war that would turn their science into something unimaginably powerful. It's a pretty amazing coincidence, actually, in that the discoveries that led to the atomic bomb, most importantly, the discovery of uranium fission, happened right before the war started. December 1938 was when the discovery was made. Over the next year, next six months is when people really started to explore it. And of course, that was during the buildup when Hitler was getting ready to invade Poland. Keen writes about the deadly mix of science and politics in his book, The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb. We'll get to the spies and the soldiers who tried to stop Germany in just a few minutes. And they, by the way, included Joe Kennedy, the older brother of President Kennedy, as well as a professional baseball player turned assassin. But for a moment, let's stick with the scientists folks who were used to keeping to themselves, to their labs, and who, once they started to understand the political power of what they were doing, also started to understand how little power, as individuals, they really had. One major expert on radioactivity, Lise Meitner, was forced to leave Germany because she was Jewish. Her work, though, stayed behind with her research partner. Finally, during the summer of 1939, before America entered the war, the physics glitterati got together for a kind of retreat in Michigan. There was Robert Oppenheimer, who would help lead the Manhattan Project to develop an atomic bomb for the U.S., the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, Nobel laureate Niels Bohr, the brilliant German scientist Werner Heisenberg, and in Michigan, tensions reached a boiling point. 
the two big people there were Enrico Fermi and Werner Heisenberg. And they actually got into several very heated arguments about Germany and about the role it was playing. Fermi at that point had already been run out of Italy because his wife was Jewish. So he was a refugee in the United States. And he and Heisenberg, again, had very heated debates about what Germany was doing. Heisenberg was a very big patriot. He was trying to defend Germany in some ways, not a fan of the Nazis necessarily, but trying to defend Germany in a lot of ways. And there was a quote uh, that I mentioned in the book where Pillman was watching them arguing. And they said, you know, everyone knows that those two are going to be leading atomic fission research on opposite sides during the war, but no one wants to talk about it out loud. Seeing a preview of the science battle to come also underscored what virtually every allied scientist knew. Germany was almost certain to win the race to an atomic weapon. They were terrified. They were convinced that Germany not only had the head start, but they had the smartest people in the world there. They had the people who discovered fission. They had Werner Heisenberg there. And in addition, there were other factors they knew that would give Germany a big boost beyond the head start and the smart people. And that was especially Germany had really good industry. Plus, of course, they had a dictator who was willing to throw a lot of resources into something like this. And so all the pieces were basically there for Germany to build an atomic bomb. And we were always hearing these rumors coming out, rumors about experiments that Heisenberg was running, about a reactor of his that exploded there, people dying from this reactor explosion. Germany had suddenly cut off all export of uranium metal. So all these things were leaking out, and they were sort of feeding this fear that scientists had. And I talk about some of the reactions they had. One of them ended up proving, in his words, on a blackboard that Germany would have a bomb no later than, I think it was 1943 or something like that. And in response, there were a bunch of scientists at the Manhattan Project in Chicago and at labs elsewhere over Christmas in 1943, over New Year's and Christmas. They actually sent their families into the countryside to keep them safe because they were convinced all the signs they thought were pointing to Hitler coming in and releasing either a regular atomic bomb or a radioactive dirty bomb and basically trying to wipe out Chicago or New York or another big city. Can I just ask you, I, I, I don't know exactly how much we know about the German side and where they were. Were, were the scientists in the U.S. just way off like Hitler and his folks were nowhere near being able to drop a bomb in the U.S., or they were close to it, but they didn't do it, or how was Hitler doing in terms of the science? So historians kind of debate that still, and they wonder, you know, what if they had given them more resources? Basically, it was a problem of resources, where Germany, because of embargoes and things, just didn't have enough resources to throw in there to make an atomic bomb. A radioactive dirty bomb would have been a realistic option had Werner Heisenberg and others been able to get their reactors going. So historians kind of debate, you know, what if they had uh, moved things around a little bit, dedicated a little more resource to it? And I think one of the really interesting things about the whole story is that that fear of Adolf Hitler getting a bomb was what really drove the Manhattan Project 
as well. And again, given that this was a wartime urgency issue to make an atomic bomb, it's possible they wouldn't have tried to make an atomic bomb after the war either. And it's possible we wouldn't have atomic bombs today had they not been pushed so fast and so furious by that fear of Germany getting a bomb first. So your book is called The Bastard Brigade, this group of people who basically tried to stop Germany from developing an atomic bomb. Who was the first person who was like, I have an idea. Let's let's get together a group of people and do whatever we can to slow down this science in Germany. It's a few people. There were a bunch of scientists, as I said, run out of Germany who were afraid of them. And they were on the Manhattan Project or new people on the project and were always kind of urging them on and saying, hey, this is a real threat. And eventually the head of the Manhattan Project, Leslie Groves, realized that it was a threat, realized that they didn't have good information about what Germany was doing, and decided to put together some teams to go into Europe to either spy on or sabotage or even in some cases try to assassinate members of the Atomic Bomb Project, the Uranium Club in Germany. And that's when you kind of get into the other characters that I talk about in the book, like uh, Joe Kennedy, JFK's older brother, who actually died on a peripheral branch of this mission. There's Mo Berg, who was a very famous Major League Baseball player and then joined the war effort, decided to become an assassin after that. Some of the other scientists in the Bastard Brigade, the group that they actually sent into Europe undercover to try to root out secrets about them. So that, all of those groups kind of come from Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project. So I want to get to some of those individuals in a second. But first, why was it called the Bastard Brigade? (laughs) Well, there were a couple of reasons. First of all, the group that was running around was not part of the regular chain of command within the military. So they didn't report directly to a higher unit each time. They reported directly to Leslie Groves and only Leslie Groves. So they didn't have a parent organization. So in metaphorical sense, they were a bastard unit. They did not have a uh, parent uh, who was kind of in charge of them. But they sort of relished the nickname as well because they were kind of this hard-charging group. They were always running behind enemy lines, getting fired at. They were actually the first troops to enter Paris ahead of the French army even. Even though the Nazis still had tanks and things there, they kind of went in in this jeep and took them on all on their own. So they sort of relished the hard-charging kind of reckless atmosphere and kind of, I think, enjoyed being called uh, the Bastard Brigade on their own. So you mentioned Joe Kennedy Jr., whose father at the time was the ambassador to England, living in London with his nine children, uh, one of whom was uh, John F. Kennedy. And uh, how did Joe Kennedy, who, by the way, not a scientist, how did he get interested, get involved in taking this sort of level of risk in the military? So basically, it was jealousy of his younger brother. Joe and Jack had been a few years apart in school, and they competed over everything, over grades, over sports, everything. And Joe was actually the one who always beat Jack. He was the better one. And in fact, Joseph Kennedy Sr., the father, the ambassador, said that Joe was the one who was going to go far. They were grooming Joe to run for president someday, not Jack. Jack was kind of an afterthought. But during the war, JFK, very famously, PT-109, became a war hero. There were newspaper, magazine articles about him. He became one of the brightest stars of the war. And Joe 
could not stand it. He was furious that his kid brother was beating him in this what was probably the most important thing in their lives up to that point. And I should say, Joe, kind of like his younger brother, wanted to hold elective office. And he thought, like, being a war hero was the way to go. And here was his younger brother. And he'd already, like, you know, done it. He'd become a war hero. Yeah, Joe definitely had his eye on going into politics. And that was one of the reasons he joined the war, because he knew that being a war hero gives you a big leg up in getting elected. So when his younger brother of all people became much more famous, he was furious. And he started volunteering for these ridiculously dangerous missions in order to make a name for himself as well. And that's what ultimately got him involved in a peripheral branch of this project to stop the Nazi atomic bomb. Nazi Germany was building these gigantic concrete bunkers in northern France to launch missiles over toward London. And there were rumors going around for various reasons that these were going to be atomic missiles that were going to be there. And this was a terrifying thought. And when they told Dwight Eisenhower about this, he was petrified. He said, you guys are scaring the hell out of me. And he actually gave the destruction of those bunkers the highest priority out of any military action in all of Europe aside from the D-Day operations. That's how big a priority taking these bunkers out was. So what they decided to do was they decided to bomb them, but the bombing didn't work. The bunkers were too big, too well reinforced. So someone came up with kind of a crazy idea, which was to take a plane, a big World War II bomber plane, strip everything out from inside it, and then fill it back up with an explosive like napalm. And then they were going to fly these planes over to France, and they were going to try to ram them into these concrete bunkers with all the napalm inside. And basically, they had enough technology where they could kind of crudely set up a remote control system that could fly them across the English Channel and kind of steer them toward the bunker. So they're kind of like unmanned drones. Like it was nobody's a drone. in it was exactly them. A drone. Okay, okay. Right. But the problem was they couldn't take off without a pilot in there. The electronics were not good enough to take off. So they needed a pilot to take off with the, all the napalm inside the plane, get it in the air, set up the drone system with this kind of crude electronics they had, and then parachute out before the plane actually rammed home. And Joe volunteered to be one of those pilots to get the plane off the ground, set up the electronics, and then parachute out. And that's how he ended up dying, was one of the planes, no one really knows why, ended up exploding in midair while he was inside it, and he ended up dying. And one of the kind of crazy things about it is this was such a top-secret mission that not even the Kennedys, the family, knew exactly what was going on. They told them very, very little information about it because this was such a top-secret mission. And also they were kind of worried that they had screwed up and that they were going to get in trouble for this. So they kind of tried to cover it up somewhat. Hmm. Uh, so let's pause here for a moment. I'm talking to Sam Keen, who's the author of The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb. And when we come back, the brigade goes after perhaps the most important German scientist of them all by sending an American pro baseball player to assassinate him. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in a minute.
the secret effort to stop Germany from developing an atomic weapon during World War II was a top priority in the military. But it wasn't always so well thought out. Joe Kennedy, the older brother of JFK, died in an attempt to launch a plane full of explosives towards what the U.S. thought was a bunker where Hitler was developing weapons. Meanwhile, the Allies were conducting raids on buildings containing ingredients that might prove desirable for a nuclear bomb. And then there was the effort to go after some of the Nazis' greatest minds, and maybe take them out. Which is when the government turned, strangely, to a professional baseball player named Mo Berg. He spoke, some people said, a dozen different languages. He had degrees from Princeton, Columbia. He attended the Sorbonne for a while in Paris. He was a brilliant, brilliant person. But he just loved playing baseball. That's Sam Keen, author of The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb. Keen says Berg may have been the most famous benchwarmer in sports history, but the publicity around his intelligence kept his career alive. This guy was this big, lumbering catcher from Newark. He had a big unibrow. Definitely didn't look like he was the smartest fellow out there, but he was brilliant. He'd traveled all over the world. He had stories, you know, from the Far East. He'd been to the Middle East. He'd been all over, basically everywhere. And he was very, very famous. He ended up going on this quiz show, radio quiz show, called Information, Please. It was like the jeopardy of its day. And he astounded them. Professor Berg catches for the Boston Red Sox. In addition, he's got a string of degrees after his name long enough to hang yourself with. A philological baseball player is something new on this program. He answered dozens of questions correctly, got the trick questions right, did everything. And after that, he became a very, very big celebrity. He was friends with Will Rogers and the Marx Brothers and President Franklin Roosevelt. So he became one of the more famous people in the United States. Berg had once gotten in trouble with his baseball bosses for overindulging on croissants while he was in Paris at the Sorbonne and getting terribly out of shape. Unusual, for sure, but Keane says it got even more unusual than that. I think my, my favorite Moberg story was there was a doubleheader once in Detroit, and he was out in the bullpen, and he was bored, so he picked up this book on non-relativistic space-time and started reading it. And the people in the dugout were like, what are you doing? Why are you reading this book? And so he explained to them that he was going to Princeton in a few weeks, and he was going to drop in on Albert Einstein, and he wanted to be able to discuss non-relativistic space-time with Albert Einstein. And that's why. And so he polished off this whole book in the bullpen during a doubleheader in Detroit, and then later went on to chat with Albert Einstein which might be why the American government thought that Berg would be a good person to head to Germany, assess how the science of the atomic bomb was progressing, and perhaps kill the leader of that scientific effort. So Berg was Jewish, and he really despised Hitler. And he decided that when the war started, he wanted to get involved somehow in the war effort. A little too old for the military at that point. So he joined what was called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was basically the precursor to the CIA. Except the OSS, as I talk about in the book, was much less professional, much less well-run than the CIA was. In fact, it was some ways it was a lot. It was kind of terribly run, 
And they were always picking up misfits like Mo Berg. There were professional wrestlers involved, theologians, mafia hitmen. I mean, Julia Child was on their roster. So they had all these very odd, unusual spies, including Mo Berg. Sent Mo Berg on a few missions. At one point, he parachuted into Norway to examine the heavy water plant that was there, did all these other missions for them. And eventually, they decided that they wanted to try to kidnap Werner Heisenberg, who was working on the Uranium Club, the Nazi atomic bomb project. For various reasons, this plot to kidnap Werner Heisenberg fell apart, and it turned from a kidnap attempt into an assassination attempt. So they sent Mo Berg to Switzerland, where Heisenberg was giving a talk. It was a neutral country, so Americans could travel there and Germans could travel there. Heisenberg went there to give a lecture, and Mo Berg went there to listen to the lecture with a pistol in one pocket and a cyanide pill in the other pocket. And his instructions were that if Heisenberg gave any sort of indication that Germany was close to building an atomic bomb or detonating one, Mo Berg was supposed to stand up during this lecture and shoot him dead. And this was a completely crazy idea. I mean, you don't just send assassins in to kill Nobel Prize winning scientists. Switzerland basically would have kicked all of our diplomats out. Every other intelligence operation we had running in Switzerland would have been disrupted as a result. But this fear of Germany getting the bomb was so great that the risk was considered worth it. Even if all of our other intelligence fell apart, we could not let Germany get the bomb. And taking out Werner Heisenberg, the effective head of the project, was, they thought, the best way to disrupt the project if they were close. Now, did it seem to anybody like a mistake to send in like a really big guy who's picture's been all over the papers and is na- at least nationally famous, maybe internationally famous. I-, I mean, I would think like if I was looking for an assassin, I'd pick somebody who blended into the crowd. Right. And there was a big debate when they first brought Moberg on. I mean, the guy was one of the most famous athletes in the world. He was also big, tall, muscular. He was going to this lecture in Switzerland, posing as a graduate student there. He was way too old to be a graduate student. So this plot wasn't thought out well in a lot of ways. But again, that they just said, you know, we, we have to do something. And so there were those de- kind of debates, but people just sort of brushed objections aside and just ran for as fast as they could. Okay, so Moberg listens to the lecture Warner Heisenberg gives with a pistol and a cyanide pill. What happens? He decides that it's inconclusive. He decides he doesn't quite know enough to decide whether he can shoot him or not. And there's actually, Moberg was taking notes during the lecture, and he was sort of fascinated by Heisenberg as a scientist and as a thinker. Heisenberg had sort of a philosophical bent because of his famous uncertainty principle, which is a quantum mechanics principle. And during the lecture, Moberg kept referencing the uncertainty principle and his own mindset and how uncertain he was and how there were kind of these knots twisting around in his head that really mirrored in a lot of ways the uncertainty principle of Heisenberg. So he had to withdraw. He actually had another encounter with him a few days later at a party, and then he followed Heisenberg home and was talking to him there. And there, after the party, on the dark streets, while they were wandering around Zurich, he really had a good chance to shoot him because it was dark out, no one was around. He could have gotten away with it, probably. But again, he decided they just couldn't risk it. 
So then take me to the, like, near the end of the war. Even after D-Day, I mean, there's still, like, this pursuit of these scientists. What happened? How did things sort of end for this brigade? Basically, uh, the resistance in Germany collapsed in, you know, January-ish 1945. It was kind of the last push for them. And then the Allied armies basically started sweeping through. And the Bastion Brigade, uh, unfortunately for us, the section where all the German scientists were was controlled by the French army. So they divided Germany up into quarters, essentially. And the French army was supposed to take over the part where we knew all the scientists and their equipment were. So the Bastion Brigade basically had this dash down to southern Germany where they had to sweep in, round up all the members of the Uranium Club they could, and to get back out of there before the French army knew what was going on. Eventually, they ended up at a place called Farm Hall, an estate in England, where they were sort of put under arrest and kept there through the end of the war in the Pacific. And that's actually where Werner Heisenberg and other people found out out that the United States had successfully detonated an atomic bomb in Japan. And when they first heard this news, they didn't believe it. They said there's no way the Americans of all people made an atomic bomb. They thought actually they were just using atomic as sort of an intensifier, like just an adjective to mean something really big. They didn't think they actually meant an atomic explosion until they heard another broadcast that went into a lot of detail about it and actually became convinced that we had detonated an atomic bomb. And it was devastating for them. Uh, As I mentioned in the book, there was a quote where uh, one of the scientists on the American side said, until that point, they knew Germany had lost the war, but they thought they had at least won the war of the laboratory. But at that point, they realized they hadn't even won the war of the laboratory and that the Americans had far outpaced them in the work that they'd done in building an atomic bomb. Hmm. When you look back at this whole saga that started in the 1930s, lasted well into the mid-1940s in terms of, like, developing um, an atomic weapon and people being scared about what other, you know, what the the Allies worried about the Axis, the Axis maybe worried not enough about the Allies, but a little bit. Um, When you look back at that, how much do you think um, individual scientists and the decisions they made mattered. I mean, like I talked about Enrico Fermi before, and you described this scene where he's like, he knows he has to get out of Italy. You know, it's not safe anymore. Mussolini has amassed too much power. As I said, his wife was Jewish. Like they had to get out. And his lab is doing like amazing cutting edge stuff. And um, Niels Bohr, this Nobel Prize winning physicist takes him aside and he's like, I think you're going to be winning an award in a few weeks, which is like the Nobel by an award. He means the Nobel Prize. Um, and and Fermi's like, yeah, great. You know, I want to take it with me. I'm going to Columbia University. I wonder, like individual decisions like that, people saying I'm going to go to this place or this place. How much did that like change the course of history? I think it made a pretty big deal considering that we would not have been able to build an atomic bomb had we not had those scientists decide to leave and to come over and to work on our Manhattan Project. And a lot of the things I talk about in the book about sending people 
into Germany to spy on and sabotage and even try to assassinate. A lot of that drive came from those individual scientists who were talking amongst themselves, talking about how worried they were, talking about how the U.S. needed to do something in response. So, and as I said before, uh, I'm not sure that we would have built an atomic bomb and maybe we wouldn't even have atomic bombs nowadays had that fear of Germany not been driving us so hard. And a lot of that really came from the individuals involved, the ones who were really pushing and knew how dangerous Germany was. Hmm. Sam Keen is a science writer. He's the author of the book, The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb. Sam, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. website, we're going to have a link to an interview I did a while back with Jeanette Conant, whose grandfather, James Conant, helped lead the Manhattan Project. And she talks about the moral qualms of the scientists working on that effort in the U.S. That discussion is at our website, innovationhub.org. Innovation Hub.